Welcome to Face Your Faith with West Kenyon. It is our hope that today's study will encourage you to grow deeply in your relationship with God as we study the Word together. Now let's join West for today's study. Today we are going to hopefully come to terms with several very common quotes and phrases we have crafted and added to God's Word over the centuries. And when we conclude this two-part series, it is also my hope we will have learned what is truly in God's Word and what truly isn't. I personally think it is very important to know what God's Word says and what God's Word does not say. I believe it is important because if we aren't properly educated in God's Word, we have a far greater chance of failing the test when we are called on to give the answer for the true hope that is in us. And that hope must be hope in the truth, and that truth is God and all his promises. Don't know about you, but I don't think there are too many things more embarrassing than blurting out a wrong answer or statement with enthusiasm and conviction. Although I suppose it could get worse if one is prone to blurting out multiple wrong answers and statements with enthusiasm and conviction. But that unfortunately is what many Christians are good at, and even those who hold firm to the truths of Deuteronomy 4.2 and Revelations 22.18-19. And even those who are convinced that God's Word is infallible and perfect as it is and does not need any editing, we as Christians regularly rewrite and author from scratch our own ideas and thoughts on what God's Word supposedly does say. And we will start off with several of the major fictional phrases that can't be substantiated in any way in God's Word that we have been quoting for generations. And from there, we will move into a few less egregious sayings we have conjured up. And while they are fairly accurate summaries of the scripture, they are still not found word for word in the word. I will also add in all of this, I hope we will walk away knowing what a disservice our ignorance of God's word is to everyone we present the gospel to when we use these unbiblical sayings. More often than not, when others discover we are misquoting scripture, we will very likely lose our credibility and will be immediately dismissed and our witness and testimony will ultimately be useless, that is, until we choose to grow and change our ways. So here we go with probably the most popular saying of all time. Fact or fiction, God helps those who help themselves. This is completely fiction. Nowhere in scripture can we find this or even pull enough scripture together to somehow make this statement come together in the slightest way. In fact, the scriptures, God's word, completely contradicts this statement. Yet this is such a famous line used by the church. Remember, the term church is the body of believers, not the building. And since this is such a popular statement, which we can recite in our sleep, we are going to use just as popular a verse we can recite in our sleep to contradict it. And we'll start with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So if it were true that God only helped those who helped themselves, then each one of us would have to die for our own sin in order to get right with God and in order to receive him as Lord and Savior. As is the case, however, we know once dead, it's too late to get right with God. So that doesn't seem to be a very beneficial path to take. How about another very famous piece of scripture that completely contradicts our make-believe Bible verse? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him 
and he will make your paths straight. And this too is in direct contradiction to God helps those who help themselves. So if God were to only help us once we helped ourselves, we would not need God. What would he be good for? He would have no purpose in our lives. And that is not what God has ever indicated to us, not one time. And as the passage points out, if we were to take care of things before God would step in, that means we would also have to trust in ourselves prior to trusting in God. So how about we reread Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 as if it were the case that we needed to help ourselves before God would help us. And here's what it would say. Trust in yourself with all your heart and lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge yourself and you will make your path straight. Again, at that point, there is no need for God because you got it all put together on your own. And this would mean you are a co-God or completely God of your life. How about one more to wrap this up? Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, God, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. More proof our popular quote is nonsense. Here in this passage, Jesus points out it is precisely when we are a mess, when we are beat up, worn out, down and out, maybe even holding on to life by a thread, that he invites us to come to him as we are. And he invites us as we are because God knows we are incapable of helping ourselves outside of him. Also, be sure to take a look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 as well for more evidence. So the conclusion on this phrase, the statement is nowhere to be found in God's word and is in complete contradiction to the entirety of the scriptures. All right, next on the list. And I know it's close to Christmas, so I hope this doesn't ruin it for you. But fact or fiction, the three wise men. Perhaps you know the Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. You know the story of the three wise men who brought gifts to Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem. And if by chance you do know the story and know the carol, and know there are three wise men that brought the infant Jesus gifts, you have not read the account of what took place in God's word for sure. Nowhere does God's word state anything about three wise men. For what it's worth, even the title of the carol is a mess because they weren't even kings, they were magi. And this too points to our insatiable love of embellishing on God's truth. To help us out here, we will look at the passage from Matthew 2.1, which is the passage we have been twisting to get our three kings. And it says the following. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? Did you hear a mention of how many Magi or wise men there were? In verses 7 through 8, Matthew repeats himself. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Did you hear any mention the second time of how many magi went? So where did we get this three wise men business? The only remote indication of a number in this account of Jesus's birth is referenced by the number of gifts that were given to Jesus. But nowhere does it say these were the only gifts that were given. In all cases here, we have drawn unsubstantiated conclusions from what was reported. To further complicate things, various religions have ascribed names to the non-existent trio. Quick addition to the account of what was taking place here, these magi or wise men 
were not at all going to see Jesus to honor him with their gifts. This unspecified number of magi were sent, however, by Herod to get the exact location of Jesus so Herod could have him killed. This is not a sweet story that is deserving of a Mary Carol and certainly not deserving of misrepresentation on behalf of Christians. The conclusion on our phrase, there was more than one magi who were not kings, whose mission was to scout out the location of Jesus to have him killed, and the number of gifts in total brought to Jesus is unknown. On to our next popular saying, fact or fiction, money is the root of all evil. Our third one that is completely fiction and can't be found in God's word. And if by chance this were true, as a Christian, you could no longer accept your paycheck from your employer, and you will certainly have to close down your bank account and immediately relinquish your funds. Hey, by chance, if you are considering dumping all your money because it is rooted in evil, please let me know. I will gladly and fully support you in removing this evil from your life, and I guarantee you I will put it to very good use and God-honoring use at that. But lest we digress, let's look at where this twisted saying likely came from, and we are going to head straight to 1 Timothy 6.10 which I will read from the King James Version since this is the only version that uses the closest version of the phrase. And the passage reads as follows. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Aha, you say, that's it. I knew it. Plain as day. Money is the root of all evil. Aha, there it is. That's not at all what it says. Because if that is how you read that, you are not reading what is written. And church, please listen. We do this a lot with God's word, which is how we end up with these unbiblical quotes. So let's go back and see this. Not read it. Let's see it for exactly what it is telling us. And I will preface with the fact that this verse points out in multiple ways. In fact, the writer Paul gets redundant to make sure we don't misunderstand and twist it as we have and still do. So let's work through this passage in two parts, and we will start with just the first five words. For the love of money. Let's put a period right there. That's as far as we need to go because these five words alone provide the entire meaning of this verse. Do you see this? Money is not evil. Having money is not evil. Having money does not make people evil. Having lots and lots and lots of money and being crazy rich is not evil in any way, shape, or form. Nowhere does it indicate this in the passage. The only thing we see here and crystal clear is that the love of money is sinful and evil. And that is 100% true. Because if we love money, we can't love God. And that we know from God's word is a sin and it is wrong and that is evil. And that's where the statement ends. Let's take a look at Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Precisely the point, God is indifferent as to how much money we have. His only stipulation is that money does not become an idol, something we treasure, something we indulge in, and something we hold near and dear to our lives. But all at the same time, God calls us to be excellent stewards, which means he's asking us to take interest in our money and be excellent managers of every penny, and to use every penny wisely. God also indicates that we are to be ready to part with our money in the form of tithing and helping others in true need. 
And God goes still further with regard to our finances and tells us to also put our money to work for us. Yes, God tells us to invest, to make more money. And that we find in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And if need be, I encourage you to read that on your own later. And so it is this verse was written to tell us only one thing. Don't fall in love with your money. No more, no less. Now let's finish the remainder of this verse. And it concludes with what happens when you do turn your love from God to money. And I will conclude the verse here by using the ESV. It is through this craving, loving and worshiping of your money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or much suffering. There we have it. The conclusion of what turning to loving money will very likely lead to. Only one reason I should mention I switch from the KGV to the ESV here is because we don't speak and use, and most people don't even understand, 412-year-old 17th century British English. And for that matter, Brits, even the highly educated and well-heeled, don't speak like this any longer and haven't since the 17th century. And to a considerable extent, the KGV is written in a very unfamiliar language to most people. So the conclusion here on our saying, no amount of money is in no way evil, but worshiping it is. All right, next on our list, fact or fiction, the sinner's prayer. Now, I know this one is not used as a direct quote from the Bible, but it is discussed very often, and especially by pastors, as if it were a prayer in the scriptures and on the same level as the Lord's Prayer. But to that end, there is no such prayer as the sinner's prayer anywhere in God's Word. And this one in particular, I believe very strongly, is potentially the most dangerous one on our list. And that because the prior statements on our list do not deal directly with one's life. They do not affect one's standing with God for the rest of eternity and whether or not they will be spending their eternity in heaven or hell. So where did this very, again, in my opinion, dangerous idea come from? We ultimately don't know, but very likely it came from the idea that people regularly ask the question of, so what do I say to God to receive him as Lord and Savior? And very likely this mythical prayer was conjured up with someone saying, here is a summary of God's word on what we need to say, the verbal steps as it is, to communicate to God and ask to receive salvation. And since I have already done this, just say what I said when I did it and you'll be good to go. The major problem with this is, however, the words don't save you. But once again, we too often misrepresent God's word and likely our supposed sinner's prayer was derived from this passage. Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But nowhere in this passage does it indicate we need to just recite words that sound honorable and holy, nor does it indicate that anyone else is to be coaching and coaxing us through the process. What it does indicate, however, and very plainly, is that I, we, along with God, have to take some serious action, and not the action of just words, but the action of confession. And that confession must be a moment more profound than anything you and I have ever witnessed in our entire life. Because this confession must take shape through the root of conviction, and it must be conviction alone that has matured 
in order for someone to exclaim, to confess, that Jesus is indeed Lord, and further, that the same driving conviction must burn a hole in our heart with the unquestionable understanding and full knowledge that God raised Jesus from the dead. And only then is it possible to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. So here's what I am convinced of. When one has come to the point in their life knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, no human on the planet has the vocabulary to utter our heart's confession before the Almighty God. I am convinced this moment in one's life cannot truly be put into understandable words. Let's take a look at Romans 8.26 to take this just a bit further. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And if this is not where we are when we are truly and sincerely prepared in our hearts, knowing and trusting what God has called us to, and as is indicated by the passage, we are not legitimate in what we are confessing with someone else's words. Church, we have one job Jesus gave us to do. Mark 16, 15 through 16. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And this is our direct and only call to action as believers from God. Nowhere does it say, after we spread the good news, to coach people through what to say to get saved. Tragically, I know entirely too many people who have participated in altar calls that have done no more than blabbered a few lines from a script in a service in response to someone who appears to be an authority and have the magical powers to guide people in a few seconds worth of words to deny Satan and turn their life over to God. And then, to top it all off, this same authority who told you what to say determines and confirms that you are now exactly where you need to be. You are now in the club, signed, sealed, and delivered, all done, and you can now with tears in your eyes say, Hallelujah, praise God, I've been redeemed, I made it. Again, based on what we have just seen in God's Word, that is not at all what obtaining a relationship with Jesus Christ looks like. It is not that easy. It is not that simple. You simply do not walk away from Satan, the master manipulator and deceiver of your life, on a whim of pretty words that aren't even yours. Receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and denying Satan is nothing short of cosmic war. You are passing from darkness into light, from evil to good. Satan is not going to let you go easily. You are going to have doubts, serious doubts. You are going to question if what you are doing, talking to God, is even valid and doubts that there is no way God could be who he says he is. You are going to wrestle with all kinds of emotions, and it is in no way going to be settled in a few seconds with a few prescribed words. According to God's word, there is nothing more serious than the decision you personally battle and wrestle through than accepting or denying Jesus Christ as Lord, fully God, fully man, fully spirit. And this work is only done by the Spirit of God, not people. Conclusion on the sinner's prayer? There is no sinner's prayer to be found in the Bible. Accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior is between you and God and no one else. And the only job of the believer is to tell the world the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That comes directly from God's Word. And let the seeds of God's Word fall where they may. 
and let God do the rest. Don't forget, God called us to be farmers who only plant. God does the watering, God does the growing, and God does the harvesting. So church, let's stop meddling in God's affairs and instead get to work on what God has called us to do. And we will stop here to conclude part one and pick up next time with part two when we will look at the phrases that are not quite as egregious as what we have just looked at in today's study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you needing to ask for forgiveness. We really need to repent for taking so much of what we hear and not testing it against your word. Forgive us for being so gullible and latching on to these things that sound good and sound right without knowing what we are saying and if it is accurate and not only as it relates to your word, but with everything in our lives that we hear. Help us to be excellent students of your word and to desire learning to the best of our abilities everything we can from you and bind it around our fingers and stamp it on the tablets of our heart. Inasmuch, we thank you for allowing us to come to you for help in making the necessary changes in our lives to live more like you, to live as you have taught us to live and in a way that magnifies your name in all the earth. And this we humbly ask in the name above all names, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ.